If you keep your Bibles open, want very much to begin us again in last week's verses. As we go into this week, and let me just read that for us before we go into prayer, that Peter begins in writing to God's elect strangers in the world. That's the address as he addresses us. And the first thing that he says, that immediately directs our focus, is upward toward God when he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Would you pray with me as we come before the Word of God together? And Father, we as one body come before you, Lord, asking that we would have the unity given even in a diversity of personalities and giftings and callings in this church, that we are nevertheless one for one spirit gives us all those gifts, one spirit, one faith, and one baptism, and one Lord controls and guides and bonds us together in the closest of union. And we ask God that as we join in this unity, as we gather, Father, in your name, that we would find that you are here in our midst, invisible, yet nevertheless present, waiting to be revealed. We ask for that revelation even this week ahead of the time. For we pray these things, God, in Christ Jesus' name. I've spoken here a few times of my love for the atheist author Ayn Rand. And one of the reasons why is I've quoted freaking passages from her. Let me read you just one sentence, actually, or maybe two. Actually, no, first one sentence. In a book called Atlas Shrugged. And this is part of the reason why I love Ayn Rand. She, she talks in ways that most people don't. She said, Joy, joy is not to be stumbled upon. This is informative for us as we look into this passage about rejoicing. Joy is not to be stumbled upon. You do not achieve joy by drifting, by not knowing where you're going and from what source your joy comes from. Joy is not to be stumbled upon, but to be achieved. And the act of treason is to let its vision drown in the swamp of the moment's torture. Let me read that for you one more time. Joy is not to be stumbled upon, but to be achieved. And the act of treason is to let its vision drown in the swamp of the moment's torture. And I love Ayn Rand because very few people in the world speak of a despair or not being joyful as a form of treason. And the reason why that I think that is so informative and so helpful for us in understanding where First Peter is at when he says that we rejoice because of an inheritance into the kingdom that we have is that he also would see that as treasonous for us to be in despair, for us to not have a hope, to live hopelessly when the kingdom of God that is given to us by which through the new birth we have been given a new identity and citizenship into a kingdom that in this kingdom is full of joy and peace and life and the gifts of God and that we dwell and exist primarily in this kingdom. And so that 
she would say in these terms, I think Peter would just agree, that to say, I have no hope, that I despair, that I do not know power in my life, is to say that I do not live in the kingdom of God. That my primary reality of my existence and my citizenship and my identity is in the fallenness of this world and I do not yet experience, I have not experienced the transfer of my citizenship from the kingdom of this world and all of its sorrows into a kingdom that is coming, that is dawning, that is bright with the hope because its source is God and its light is God. Let me put it to you in, in different political terms. I first came here about six years back. The movie Gladiator had not... It, we were still, especially men, were living in the glow of watching Russell Crowe and stomp around with the sword and fight in these incredible battles against legions and, and all that. And there was this scene that I noted, which I would note to you again. It was such an important scene for me. There was... It, so this is, in a, this is in CGI, recreation of the generation right following the generation of Christ. You get a window into ancient Rome and to the world of the early Christians through that movie. And there's this amazing scene between Russell Crowe's Maximus and the aging king Aurelius. And as this aging king is dying, he is questioning Maximus, this gladiator, or before he was a gladiator, this general, who was always there in the front of the ranks of the Roman armies, conquering the known world on behalf of Rome. And his devotion, his sacrifice, his vigor in fighting was so great that Marcus Aurelius asks him, why are you so committed? Why do you love Rome so much? You've been born outside of Rome and you've never even seen it. Why do you love Rome? Why are you so devoted? And Russell Crowe, in his own way, that he cannot, he cannot imitate that gravelly voice that he has. This is General Maximus, this grizzled warrior, is saying, everywhere that I've gone, I've seen the darkness of men in their brutality, and in their savagery. Rome is the light, he said. Rome is the light. So he is proud to fight at the front of the armies of Rome as he sees the civility, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome spread over the ancient world and to civilize and bring a unity into all these savage tribal worlds and to bring it under one dominion, one kingdom, this light of Rome. And it is into this world that the people and the Christians of Peter, that Peter writes to, that they were coming into direct conflict as they were saying all over the Roman Empire, Caesar, Kaiser, is not kurios. He is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ is the light. And kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus knows no end. And we fight at the forefront of the kingdom of God and we see that His light is spreading everywhere. The New Hope Fellowship that we are a part of is a part of this fellowship of people that are looking to the future as the kingdom of God is coming as we in answer and repeat repetition of the prayer of Jesus and saying, Thy kingdom come. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we see the goodness of God and the gospel of God spread over this world, that we are part of that kingdom and a part of that new coming inheritance that cannot spoil, perish, or fade is what Peter tells us. And to live in that kingdom and to have that as our identity marker, our citizenship, is to live in a different reality than everybody else in the rest of the world. 
And there is a power in this kingdom that allows us to, let me pick up from verse 6, that allows us to rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. That there is a superior joy that we have that leavens us and carries us even through the difficulties that we may currently and presently be experiencing. This word of God comes to you especially if you're going through a trial at this present moment. It is the way that God is asking and calling you to carry you safely in the midst of trial, in the midst of a many-colored grief, as is written about here, that they come in every single shape, size, form, and duration as griefs and trials are wont to do in this world. Peter says that these trials, that these griefs, they are necessary. And the context makes that clear. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. And the context of this passage and the context of this world, it means that you have to suffer trial. There is no getting around that. And that the shielding of the power of God and His salvation of you is not an end run around difficulty in trial. There is a kind of an errant and wrong kind of theology that is let loose in many churches that say that to be a part of the people of God means that I don't have to suffer anymore. And there is a very bad reading of Old Testament and New Testament texts that say because of Christ suffered for me, therefore I don't have to suffer. And that flies directly in the face of both Old and New Testament texts that says words like Jesus when he says that if anyone is going to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The universal testimony of the scriptures is that to be saved in Christ Jesus and be shielded by his power does not mean that he plucks us up out of this world and frees us from any kind of suffering and allows us to drift into heaven, but he gives the power and the faith and the hope and the constancy to allow us to go through trials. These trials, he says, are necessary. And the reason why that they are is because there's just a part of living in this world. As we go on a little bit in Peter, he will remind us, this is when you go through trial, believers, brothers and sisters of God in Christ Jesus, they say, whenever you suffer a trial, whenever somehow in the happiness of your existence, some kind of trial has come in and seeped its way into your life, some difficulty, some pain, some disturbance, some pressure. He says, don't see it as something as surprising happening to you as if you could never have expected it. He says, it is something that is a normal part of Christian life and that suffering is not the mark of a weak faith. That suffering is the mark of faithfulness, of a faithful existence in God, in Christ Jesus. Let me bring us together to this reality. In the words of Henry Nouwen, who said this, he said, Many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they have based their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness or confusion or doubt. That when I feel one of these things, I tend to shake in my Christianity as, Am I not beloved by God? Am I somehow now forsaken by God? And he says, That's a false supposition to think that way. That all of a sudden, if a trial enters your life and you don't have the comforts 
which you are used to, that all of a sudden that God has somehow abandoned me. This is quite not the case. These sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they are understood as wounds integral to our human condition. Therefore, ministry is a very confronting service. I found this to be absolutely true. Ministry is a very confronting service. It does not allow people to live with illusions of immortality and wholeness. It keeps reminding others that they are mortal and broken. Church is the last place on earth where you ought to feel like, before I go, I've got to put on my spiritual cosmetics and my shield and my pretense and pretend that I've got everything together, either in my emotional life, in my career path, in my family life, in my spiritual life. The church of God has been in some ways been compared to a hospital where people, if anywhere on the world, can come weary and broken, exhausted and confused and lonely and find a place of succor and rest and comfort and say, we understand that it must be the church of Jesus Christ who is the first one to say in the middle, standing in the middle of every single church, come to me those who are weary, those who are heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. Eugene Peterson is much more brief in the way that he puts it. These are some of the just some of the great thinkers I think about our generation. And he just says to be in human is to be in trouble. To be human is to be in trouble so that when you find yourself in trouble that you must not say to yourself something strange or weird is happening to me. It is just a big sign says welcome to the human race. Welcome to what it means to live in a fallen existence. Do not fall into the Corinthian state of mind that said to be a Christian means that we're like, that was the whole problem in Corinth. That said we're like the angels now because we've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. God has come to us and therefore we are now, we've arrived. And if we have arrived in the here and now, there would be no future orientation. There would be no looking and yearning for the future. There would be no desire to receive the kingdom of God and to go there and be with Him. Every single grief and trial that we experience for this little while, it is a radical reorientation of our framework and perspective that says face forward and look to where you're going. There is an inheritance in this world that spoils and perishes and fades. There is an inheritance that is unfading, unspoiling, imperishable, that is being kept in heaven for you. And if you are afraid that you won't make it to receive this salvation that is being kept for you, remember, Peter says, that in the current state you are being shielded by God's power. You are being shielded by God's power so that you, in an unbroken line of faith, will be able to meet and come and receive the salvation that is being prepared for you, that is ready to be revealed at the coming of Christ. This, I think, is an enormous help for us to understand the place of faith in the place of trials and grief that we all face, that we understand it's a normative part of human existence, and that we ought not to fall into a kind of a health and wealth that says that we should never experience trial or grief or sorrow, that is part of the mortal coil and the, mortal, the human condition. I think that's part of an answer 
And there's more to it than that. There is something that not only comes to us through the suffering and trial that allows us to endure it, but allows us even to triumph over it. What First Peter is so anxious to do, what Peter is so anxious to give to the, the Christians of the First Peter communities, is to give us not just an ability to endure and withstand trial, but to triumph even gloriously over trial. And there are certain things that you need to have in place in your mental framework in order to allow that processing to happen. And the way that it speaks to it is that there is a trial that allows us not just not just to endure under it, but to actually be a testing for and part of the refining process for our faith. And so let me explain that, but let me give you an illustration of that first, and then I'll explain what Peter's talking about. That first year, I also spoke of a conference that was a fairly large one. It's one of the ones with like you know, 20 or 30,000 Christians gathered together in those arenas. And it's, they had, a, and um, whenever you have one of those kind of big conferences, you have some of the most, uh, most celebrated Christian speakers that come and minister at those large events. And G.I. Packer was one of those, and he, they had speaker after speaker. And as they were speaking, G.I. Packer, each speaker introduced a speaker that came after them. And so J.R. Packer gave his, gave his talk and his message, and then when his time was through, it fell to him then to introduce the next speaker. And the next speaker happened to be John, Johnny Erickson Tata, and I think probably all of you, if not, you know, I think all of you probably know something of her story, and that as, as a teenage girl, she had a diving accident where she was left uh, quadriplegic. So she, from the neck down, has absolutely no motility. And so she was confined as a, a young young teenage girl with so much promise, she was confined into a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And so then she was wheeled out into the middle of this platform, and as she's being wheeled out, she's coming forth. And Packer, in, a, in his own British reserve, just in the, there's some, sometimes, and even in his, all of his cool and careful, lucid thinking, sometimes he just kind of seems to ignite and light up. And as Johnny Erickson Toddy came out, he just seemed to just light up. And he looked at these 20,000, 30,000 Christians, fellow brothers and sisters, and says, and now I would like to introduce you to the healthiest person that is in this room. And when Johnny Erickson comes out in a wheelchair in the midst of her present grief and trial of suffering, which she has endured every single day for decades, and to see upon her face, there is not a single doubt of anybody in that room, no matter what. She is the healthiest person here. There is a health in her soul and a strength and a courage and a triumphant nature to her that I don't have in all of my operational limbs and, and full sight and hearing and all of my health that I do not have. What is in her that drives her so powerfully, that keeps her so steadily, so constantly, even in the midst of her present grief? She begins in this way, quoting from the Old Testament. And she there is the first words out of her mouth that she just begins to speak and proclaim into the midst of that Christian audience is that she quotes from the Old Testament and then she looks up and she says, and then, speaking of the future time, and then the lame will leap for joy. Then the lame will leap for joy. And you already understood that her faith was being carried along a temporal, let me just please say it this way, her faith is being carried along a temporal axis way. And meaning that her faith is not a flat thing 
of that today I have faith and I believe and I trust in God, and then tomorrow, I, today I believe and trust in God, that there is a line that she carries her entire life on unbroken from whatever day that it is into the future reality when she knows in the certainty of what we call faith that then, at that moment, whatever does and does not happen here on earth, there will come a time at that future time in the inheritance, in the kingdom of God, in heaven, where I, the lame, will leap for joy. And I know that with such certainty and security that that future joy, that inheritance I have kept for me, is currently informing my present state so that I do not despair daily in my current circumstances. I am not ruled tyrannically. It is not the Lord of me. My quadriplegia is not the thing that is the most dominant force in my life. There was a world in that statement, a world of every single morning waking up and not being able to do a single thing until somebody carries her up out of that bed and puts her into a wheelchair. And so that every single morning that she awakes, she must remind herself that I am not currently living under the weight of gravity. That my greatest citizenship and my identity is in a kingdom of God where there is no lame and there is no blind. The Lord over all who is the Lord of my existence, that Lord is the Lord over my life. This, it is in this that we greatly rejoice, even in the midst of current difficulty and trials. And it is this reality and this certainty that allows us to reshape. And the word that Henry Nouwen used, to creatively reformat our trials and our suffering and our grief. There must be, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so there must be an ability in every single Christian to not allow the suffering and the grief and the trial to take over your existence, but under the Lordship of God in Christ Jesus, to be able to take that trial, take that difficulty, and to reshape it and reply it so that it changes and is allowed to do something different than possibly this world intended. Let me read for you what that, in, what that intended purpose is. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that these trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor. It is one thing to say that God, no matter what trial that you go through, no matter what difficulty, it is one thing to say that God, I know that God will shield me and keep me and carry me safely through this trial. That makes you a conqueror over that trial. In Paul's terminology in Romans 8, when he said that you are more than a conqueror, 
it means that not only is that trial going to be something you're going to be able to sustain and endure and be carried through, that trial is something which God can use creatively and reshape for your good. That these trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater value than gold, that can, it can be tested and refined and proved genuine. That word, proved genuine, a Greek word is called dokimos. Our understanding of, in, as, as you all know, the, the New Testament is written in a dead language. We don't, not even, in, if you go to Greece, it's not spoken today. It's a dead form of that language which is no longer used. So to understand and to even for us to accumulate the proper vocabulary in which to translate the New Testament, we have to go back in time, back to the time when this Greek actually was existed and was spoken by people and by Christians of that time. And so one of the ways that we do this is that we go back into the literature that, is a, that was written in this ancient language. And because we want to be as accurate as possible, we don't only depend upon literary sources, which there aren't always plentiful in pre-literate society, but there is also these little things called, there's countless artifacts that we have in archaeological digs that inform the way that we understand and translate certain words in the vocabulary and the terminology that we have. So someplace in the ancient uh, Near East Mediterranean world, there was the dug up all these artifacts. And this, this, this happens uh, this is from a number of these different artifacts. And they would find a place, and as these archaeologists are digging these places up, they find that certain of these, they, they understand this, this was, the person who worked here was a potter. And so they find this kind of this remnants of a potter's kiln, and they find little bits, of, bits and pieces of the pottery in these different shards. And what they found was, they found all these different, different clay artifacts in these different vessels, these pots and these pans and, and these different cups. And inscribed on the bottom of some of these clay pots was this word, dakimas, dakimas. And what that word meant, as they started to understand, is that a potter would take a pot, he would take clay and he would make a pot or something out of it. And then it was, it was shaped, but it was not yet ready for use. And that potter would take that clay pot and he would put it into the high fires and he would put it into a furnace and then the heat would be turned up. And as that heat is being turned up, this pot that was once kind of weak and kind of able to be squashed still clay, that clay pot would harden and would solidify in the fire. And as the fires were increased, the glaze and the different colors that would put mineralized form into that clay would all of a sudden start to bleed out over the top. And these many rich colors would start to bleed all over the front. And this clay pot, when after it was done of its time in the furnace, would be brought out beautiful, strong, and ready and fit for use. And he would put on the bottom, Dakimas, approved. It didn't break in the fire. It was been tested and now it has been improved, enhanced, strengthened. Dokimos. That is the same word here, that when Peter's vision is that he sees you going into a furnace of affliction, bearing whatever it is that you have to bear. And as you go through that, there is a refining process. And to use directly his imagery, his metaphor, is that there is something in you that is more valuable than anything else that you possess. Your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, he says. And no matter what you have or what you lose in this world, the most important thing that has been given to you as a gift of mercy in your possession is your faith of God in Christ Jesus. 
And this is like gold inside of you. And yet, by virtue of being fallen and living in a fallen world, has all kinds of impurities. And it is only through going through a fire of testing and affliction that those impurities are burned off like dross. And you are beautified and made more holy and made more pure in your faith. And when you look at a saint like Johnny Erickson Tatar or a J.I. Pack or an Elizabeth Elliot, these people, that when you look at them, how has their faith become so triumphant and so victorious, so constant, so humble, so absolutely beautiful? If you were to ask them that, they surely would not tell you, by ease, by comfort, because everything has always gone my way. And my plans have always borne fruit and everything I did was productive and I've always known friendship and I've always known joy and I've always known happiness. Praise be to God. The radiance of a mature and seasoned, tested saint can only come through going through a purification process by which you say the words of certain hymns. They all of a sudden start ringing in your existence during suffering. The words of so many hymns and so many of the songs that we sing on a weekly Sunday worship service unto praise and honor and glory to God, those words not start to ring and resonate in the deepest chambers of your existence until they are pressed and squeezed there by under the weight of pressure and suffering. And so you don't sing songs like you give and you take. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't sing songs like that with full meaning and full conviction until you have lost something which you had once gained. Until you have gone through certain sufferings and certain trials of testing, the words of some of the ancient hymns, they do not fully resonate inside of your convictions where you say, my hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When all around my soul gives way, when all around my soul gives way, He then alone, alone, is my hope, my stay. He alone, that is what we call a purification of faith. When you say, in Christ alone, in Christ alone, that's where I put my strength, my trust, my hope. He is my source. And we cannot know the sufficiency of Christ, that He has enough grace for everything. His grace really is enough. And we cannot know that overabundant sufficiency until these other things have been peeled away, sometimes from our white knuckle grasp, and we are left in the dust to understand the faithfulness of God anew afresh. John Piper, who in some ways has been influenced by Ayn Rand, though, you know, it's, uh, uh, he's, he doesn't, I don't think sometimes, uh, uh, you know, uh, put that banner up, but John Piper also has that boldness, which I really love and have come deeply to appreciate. So he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Don't waste your life. I mean, you have such a short time on this earth. Don't waste your life. And I think his fertile mind, once one, he gets a hold of one idea, it starts clicking and crafting and recreatively generating all these other thoughts. 
And so under that banner of don't waste your life, he started preaching and saying things like, so that he's talking about, I don't want to waste my life, don't waste your life. And then all of a sudden, he had a, a prostate cancer. And then he thought, don't waste your cancer. In other words, don't just say that, oh, get me through this, I don't like this, let me just get to the other side of this, and, and let me just get into remission, let me just be healed, God, please just get me out of here. He says, don't waste this cancer. This cancer is given to you as a unique opportunity to refine your faith and say, even in the midst of staring death in the face, that you look at somebody that says that even though that this world may know death, that He is the resurrection and the life. And whosoever lives in Him shall not die. And scripturally, even though that He die, He will not die. So that he's saying that this cancer is a unique opportunity to join also with, along with the Apostle Paul and say whether this thorn in the flesh is taken from me or it is not. The grace of God is sufficient for me. And I know this. And my mind, I knew it before, notionally, theologically, it is what I would sign off on if I was given a theology test. There is a knowing that comes through the experience that is forced upon you in suffering. There has been so many people that I've known that have been plagued by a repeated problem of the fracture of the fall. And what I mean is that when we all fell from the perfect state of Adam, who was perfectly created in the image of God, when we all fell, we exactly, in Henry Nouwen's words, we broke. And so there's a fracture now in our existence where our soul and our body, our mind and our thoughts, our heart, they do not function as the way that they were always intended. So Christian after Christian, believer after believer, has told me that they are plagued by a habitual problem where they say that the things I know of the love of God and of the grace of God and the faithfulness of God keep themselves here in my head and they will not drop the eight inches down into my heart. I do not feel it. I don't know what it means to actually experience it. To suffer grief in all kinds of trials is God's moment. It is His unique time to press in a wine press of affliction. Those truths of His love of nothing will ever separate you from my love. Nothing can keep you from my faithfulness. No one is going to snatch you out of my hand. These truths start to endure the weight and the pressure of suffering. Start getting coming home down into your heart. Do not waste your health problems. Do not waste your economic difficulties and hardships. Do not waste your relational fractures, things that happen in your marriages or in your families. Do not waste any single suffering that you go through until you squeeze the drop of every single blessing that God is uniquely designed that to have. And when I say that, that it is uniquely designed by God ultimately for your good. That all kinds of troubles and griefs are intended by God for your good and able to be worked and reworked by God for your good. The biblical warrant that Peter puts underneath this are these words. Let me just read it to you in the last part that we'll cover today. Starting from verse 10, concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, 
trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels look too long to look into these things. So it was revealed, it says in verse 12, to them that they were not serving these Old Testament prophets that were looking forward through their prophecy to the time of suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So Peter takes it as an enormous comfort. He's comforted by this fact that these Old Testament prophets, when they were speaking prophetically about the sufferings of Christ and you're thinking in Isaiah 53 of a suffering servant, of this one that was going to suffer and by his faithful suffering bring about the redemption of Israel. And so the, all these Old Testament prophets that were speaking about Messiah and the sufferings of Messiah, that when they were prophesying these things, that they were not doing it for themselves or even their generation, but they were also speaking prophetically to a future generation, namely us. And Peter takes that as enormous comfort. The reason why is that as he's looking back into the Old Testament prophets, and they already knew by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Peter, so bold to say, the Spirit of Christ, even in the Old Testament, was speaking to them and revealing that when Messiah comes, when the Son of God, the Son of Man, in the Danielic vision, the Son of Man, when this glorious one comes, when he comes, please do not mistake him into thinking that he's going to come and he's just going to level everything and set up an earthly kingdom, reign and rule without him just kind of in this great existence of power and triumph. Already in the Old Testament, it is prophesied, predicted in Peter's language, that when Messiah, the Son of God, Son of Man, comes to earth, you will know him because he will be one from whom men hide their faces. He will have no beauty that we should admire him. He is going to take upon himself the transgression of Israel. This one is going to be a suffering servant. And you will know him because he will be marked by wounds. And he will be a man that is familiar with sorrow. Peter now is putting this prophecy of the Old Testament, which he grew up with as a little boy growing up in a Jewish home, and he is, as he writes this letter, allowing this Old Testament, which he's been steeped and immersed in his entire life, coming into alignment with the Jesus that he walked with for three years. And he's saying that he's understanding, come to understanding in the maturity, as he writes this letter of 1 Peter, that every single suffering that Jesus suffered, that I saw him go through, Everything that Jesus bore under the persecution and the condemnation of men, even to going finally into Golgotha and suffering at the cross. Every single one of those sufferings of this Messiah was not by chance, was not some tragic accident, was not some defeat under the powers of the world and the Roman kingdom. It was God's purpose always 
prophesied from the Old Testament, from the ancient times, Jesus was always going to suffer. It was under the sovereign, redemptive plan of God that Messiah should suffer and then go through it into the glories that follow. He was not in the grip of a Jewish council or a Roman political force. It was the Lord God who was doing something good for the salvation of all mankind through the sufferings of the Christ. And from there to go through the cross of glory. The comfort that Peter takes from this is saying, if this was what happened to Christ, then all of us who take up our crosses and follow Him, every single one of my trials, every single one of my griefs, every single one of these things which I think puncture my existence, they also are not tragic accidents. They are not because I am under the dominion of a company that fired me or, or, or somebody that hurt me. I am not under the dominion and reign and rule of the forces of evil in this world. Every single one of these were also pre-planned. If I could use the language, they were ordained by God. They were overruled by God for some good and perfect plan, some purpose that He had in my life. And if this was what Christ endured in His faithfulness going through suffering unto glory, then I follow Him through the fires of affliction. When I say that this is the mature Peter speaking here, and he must have written this someplace in the later years of his life, the closing illustration actually must come from Peter's own life. We remind ourselves that as we read this letter from Peter, we remind ourselves of whom the author is. Who it is that wrote this letter of 1 Peter to these communities that he's writing to. It was Peter. It was Peter that in his young, idealistic boldness, of which all of us had at one point or, or another, said, you know, Jesus, whoever falls away, whoever denies you, I, I, me, I will not ever deny, I will not deny you. John, the beloved, let's face it, he is a mama's boy. He's gonna, he probably will leave. He's such a softy. You know, James, he's such a hot boy. You know, one way, he's all over the place. He's so erratic. I will stay true to you. I will. By my own power. Is he thinking in the fullness of his pride and young arrogance? And when testing came, he broke and he failed and he fled and he ran away. And this is what also must happen in the testing of every single Christian. I, this, it used to just it make me ache when I read those words in the Gospels. That after Jesus denied Peter, Peter after, after Peter denied Jesus, and it said that he went outside and he wept bitterly. And who among us has not been there when we, in a, in a testing of our faith, to hold firm and suffer with God in Christ Jesus, that we broke and we lost and we went the other direction. And when he came to his sentence, Peter came, he went out and he wept bitterly. And I just, I knew that, and I still know that feeling so well. And so there's a bitter re repentance that Peter goes through. And what ill prepared him to meet a time of, I mean, you, you understand, what he should have done is that even as Jesus is going to his cross, G Peter should have been right behind him saying, if there is a cross for him, then there is a cross for me. 
I follow where he goes. If he's going to a cross, then give me mine also. And yet, when Christ goes to his cross, he breaks and goes to a right or a left direction, and he loses faith, and he walks away. And what ill prepared Peter to be able to go through the suffering with Christ unto glory is that as Peter is identifying Jesus as the Christ, as Jesus is saying, people say that I'm many things, who do you, but who do you say that I am? And by the Holy Spirit, Peter looks at him and says, you, you are the Messiah. You, you are the Christ. The next words of Jesus are to him about the Son of Man, meaning himself, saying that in the words of the Gospel writer Mark, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and elder teachers of the law, that he must be killed after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What ill-prepared Peter to suffer along with Jesus is because that was when Jesus already said, it's been foreordained. Do you not know your Old Testament? That has already been prophesied for the Son of Man to suffer persecution and to be crucified, to be killed. And Peter saying, no, that's not my vision of the Christian life. Not for you and not for me. Are you going to take us into victory immediately now? And when I talk about the mature Peter, it's a later Peter that to whom Jesus addresses. And after Peter then breaks faith and runs away, he at least was close enough to see the crucifixion. And he follows at a, he falls at a distance, but he does follow. And he sees, he sees his Lord being crucified. And he sees the one upon whom he had pinned every single one of his hopes and dreams be killed and then go off to the grave. And with that, he saw all of his previous hope and all of his joy and all of his courage and strength go into a grave. And then, three days later, Mary Magdalene. This is this is through taking it through taking the gospel through the lens of a, of a movie of Zeffirelli's old movie, Jesus of Nazareth. But I think he paints a wonderfully biblical picture of what happened. And in the in in Zeffirelli's telling of what happens in the gospel, is that three days later, the apostles, the disciples, they are there in the upper room. And they're there in the, all of the despondency and all of their depression, and all of their despair, and all of their shattered hopes and dreams. And Mary Magdalene, who fresh from the grave, comes bursting in. And I forgot the actress that played her. She did such an amazing job. And she looks at all the disciples. And again, she is radiant with triumph in the midst of their grief and their sorrow and their despairing. And Mary Magdalene starts to proclaim it to them. And she says, The Master, I, I love that, the Master, lives he lives and this is exactly the gospel account that we have they all look back at him you foolish foolish woman I mean, what do you know what do you know three years we invested everything in it's over it's done it's gone he's dead and she looks back and she's incredulous and saying 
He lives. He lives. He lives. And they are so hardened, so embittered, so staunchly sure of their despair and hopelessness that they all hang their heads and they just look at her in disgust. And Mary Magdalene, because of her experience of the risen Lord in Christ, she looks back at them. This is not part of the gospel account, but I think that she would have thought something like this if she wouldn't have said it. And in the Jesus of Nazareth, she looks back at the disciples and says, Cowards! Cowards! I tell you, He lives! He lives! And this we do have from our gospel records. It was Peter who then ran. He runs to the tomb. He runs there. And he goes into the tomb and he looks at all the the grave clothes which have been neatly folded aside. And he realizes that there is a force and power that is greater than death, a force and a power that is greater than all that would destroy and bring him low and would seek to triumph over him. And a new hope, a living hope, is reborn inside of him. And it is to this one when Jesus addresses him, says that Satan is going to sift you like wheat, but don't fear. When you turn back, you're going to turn back. And so at the end of his life, from John's account, John says to Peter, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter is also one who has a prophecy over his life by Christ and saying, you know, your failure of faith when you denied me, that is a parenthesis in your life. That doesn't define you. It's a parenthesis. Your failures, your weaknesses, your trials, the time that you broke, those are parentheses. There is an overruling, overarching reality in your life where God is keeping you and will keep you. And already, Jesus is prophesying into Peter's life. You're going to be faithful to the end. And what you failed to do, which is to take up your cross then, I tell you the truth. You will take up your cross. You will follow me. And you will die a death that will glorify me in the end. God overrules every single one of our tragedies and trials and temptations and sorrows for a greater good unto His glory, honor, and praise. You can count on that. You can securely bank on that. And so, no matter what difficulty you go through, you must, you must walk through it with a triumphant attitude and not one of defeat and sorrow as if the things that were against you were the most powerful thing in the world. They are not. The unequivocal testimony of Scripture is that if God is for you, there's nothing that can stand against you. As we come in, let's close into, into prayer. I'd like to put one last thought into your head, if I may. This is what I, I told the missions team before they left. They're, the missions team, which we're getting wonderful reports from, which we kind of started off our service talking about, the U09 team, a lot of God is, we're getting daily blogs, reports from Kathy, and God is doing wonderful things among them. But in the uncertainty, as some of them were going on their very first missions trip, they were, they were shaking just a bit as, as they were about ready to, you know, to go off. And so in one of the training 
uh, one of the training sessions of the, of, the, of the UO9 team, I gave them a quote by an old saint. And this is one of the kind of, lived a few hundred years back. I think, it's, I think it was Henry Martin, actually. And he said that you are immortal until God's purposes are fulfilled in you. You are immortal until God's purposes are fulfilled in you. In other words, there is not a single thing that can touch you until, until God has fulfilled everything that He has desired to do, every good purpose that He has for your life. And I'd like for you to think about that just a bit as you go into prayer before Him. And you are immortal, then nothing that stands against you can prosper until God is finished with every good purpose that He has for you, that He wants to do in and through your life. Would you pray with me as we close? prayers read the words that we have gone over from first peter in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials and these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honor when jesus christ is revealed though you have not seen him you love him And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, would you take away the barriers, not of this world, God, and of our trials and sorrows. Would you take the barriers of unbelief in our own heart that dampen and hinder the inexpressible joy from flooding into our hearts. Would you allow us to a greater receptivity and a porousness of soul in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit? And there would be a sluice, God of heaven, and a grace that is being poured down to us to be able to be permeated, drenched, Father, into our hearts and souls, the joy of knowing God in Christ Jesus. And that these would give us a triumphant, inexpressible, glorious kind of joy that would overrule all the trials and griefs which we currently undergo. And we pray these things, God, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.